When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Foil. It's a rapier. A thin sword. All right. So what do you do with it? What do you mean, what do you do with it? Self-defense? Mayhem? Shish kebab? Practice. For what? I really do love reading Star Trek novels, and I think I maybe halfway through what's out there i have to do another count it's been a while i know i'm over 400 i do know that but i don't know how far over 400 and the book we're going to discuss today is one that has been on my reading list for quite a long time and finally finally i've gotten to read it because dan said hey why don't we do this one i said yes Let's do it. So welcome everyone to Positively Trek. This is one of our book club episodes where we're going to talk about a novel. I'm Bruce Gibson and with me is Dan Gunther. Dan, you've read this novel more than once. Yeah, I've read this one a number of times. This is one that uh, I really enjoyed. I read it when it first came out, which is kind of a rarity for a book published before a certain year for me. But yeah, I really enjoyed this one. We were trying to think of, yeah, what should we do for an upcoming episode? And I thought, well, let's start on the Lost Years novels or the Lost Era novels. Excuse me. I always mix those two up. This is a long series. There's a bunch of books. I don't know that we'll get to them all, but what the heck? Let's start with the first book. And maybe if there's weeks where we don't have anything else, we can do another one of them. But I'm I'm really happy that the series starts off so strong with this one. Yes, nice. But that first book that we're going to talk about is The Sundered by Michael A. Martin and Andy Mangles. And yeah, it's the first of the Lost Era books. Now, I've only read, I think, I don't know the count, maybe two or three of the Lost Era books. This is one I never got to read. But you've read this not just once, but you think twice before this round. I think so. Yeah, I might have even read it a fourth time in there somewhere as well. But yeah, this is at least my third time reading this novel And it's funny, like you, I've only read two or three of the Lost Era novels. And because this is the first one, I think a few times I started thinking like, oh, I'm going to read all of those novels. I better start with the first one again to refresh my memory. And uh, yeah, I've read this a few times now. The first time around, I remember I only read it the first two novels of the series and i think that probably happened at least one more time after that so (laughs) this is third time's the charm right maybe this time i'll get through all the all the novels of the series see the thing is i'm going to assume that you like this novel if you've read it multiple times so spoiler that's out of the bag i guess yeah (laughs) i I was pretty clear about that up front i think too so yeah this is one I enjoyed. Uh, I would not return to it, I don't think, this many times if I didn't like it. So, yeah, this was a fun novel for a number of reasons, which I'm sure we'll get to. Well, if anybody's wondering and you're listening, you're like, oh, yeah, uh, the Lost Era novels, which one are they talking about? The Sundered, yeah, 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 which one's that? It's the one with Captain Sulu and Commander Chekhov on the cover. And uh, we're going to go right into it. And yes, we're going to hit spoilers There's your spoiler warning. We're going to dive right into it. So this book came out in August of 2003. So it's been out for quite a long time now that, you know, it's not like you haven't had time to read it. But if you're like me, it did take 18 years to get to it. (laughs) So, But the book takes place in 2298. And this would be, what, five years after The Undiscovered Country 
uh, when we saw Captain Sulu on the Excelsior. There's been other adventures of Captain Sulu and the Excelsior. There have been comics. There have been other novels. There have been audio dramas. Have you ever listened to the audio dramas? It's funny. This topic came up recently. I think I was talking with Justin Ozer about the Sulu adventures. And I think I only ever listened to one on cassette tape. It was called Cacophony. And I don't remember a lot about it other than there was these like singing aliens or something, this weird discordant <laughs> yes. notes and stuff. But uh, I don't remember a lot about it, but I did listen to at least that one of those. I haven't listened to that forever. It's been a long time. I have that one as a CD. There's another one I have as a cassette tape. But that one I have a CD. I remember it was like all these little like sounds. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I think I remember even recommend it said on the cover it recommended you listen to it with your headphones on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It does make use of that three dimensional sound space. You know, things coming in on the left and right channel and kind of thing. I remember it being pretty cool at the time. It's been a long time, though. Yeah, it's been, I was in the, it had to be, yeah, the 90s. So yeah, it was a while. Going into this one. So we have Captain Sulu of the Excelsior. And I feel like I have to say Captain Sulu of the Excelsior. Oh my. And then we have Commander Chekhov as first officer. Now this is odd because when I would read the DC comics, Commander Rand was the first officer. And in this one, she's communications officer and Chekhov is the first officer. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. I think it's a, it's a, particular interpretation of what we saw in Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. And I've seen other people go with the assumption that she's Sulu's first officer in that movie. But this book does follow on the assumption that we see her in charge of communications on the bridge, and that's her role, that she's not the first officer, she's the communications officer only. And yeah, they've brought in Chekhov as Sulu's first officer here. Yeah, and I remember, I'm trying to remember if it was a novel or a comic that addressed that Chekhov was supposed to join the Excelsior as first officer, but he was still dealing with ramifications of the eel that went in his ear and the whole con thing, yeah. and that he wasn't quite ready. The kind of post-traumatic stress disorder thing that is actually yeah. brought up in this novel as well. I'm not sure if that's yeah. been mentioned in other stories, but that is kind of one of the uh, reasons that they give for why Chekhov was the first officer of the Reliant. But then later on, like Star Trek five, Star Trek six, he seemingly uh, kind of reduced in position to being back to being the navigator or possibly the security chief on the enterprise a in those films. So yeah, kind of interesting career path there. Yeah, I remember the this novel did vaguely refer to that. And I was like, where did I read that? It was I think it might have been the comics. I don't know. Anyway, if anybody knows, they can let us know. I've read so much, I, I can't keep it all track. <laughs> keep track of it all. So. Um, but Tuvok, of course, he's here too, because we've seen that in Flashback, the Voyager episode. And But this is five years after that. So Tuvok's been serving on the ship for five years. He's not pouring tea anymore. That was just a one-time thing. <laughs> yeah, they're very explicit about that. He's learned his lesson. He does not want to seem like he's currying favor with his commanding officer. I thought it was interesting, the inclusion of Tuvok here, because if you watch Flashback, the implication is that the Kittimer incident basically made him leave Starfleet and kind of turn his back on this. But in the novel here, they establish that his parents actually convinced him to stay in Starfleet to finish out his current assignment and to, you know, to give it a try. And he acquiesces with those requests, but then, well, we'll get into it, but that comes into play in this novel as well. Yep. And we have uh, Leonard James Akaar. He's here, which is so weird because so, I'm so used to reading about him in the post-Nemesis books as this older guy. And now he's like a very young guy. I had a hard time picturing him as a young guy. Yeah, I had to kind of adjust my mental image of him as well. And he's the security chief on the Excelsior because of course he would be, right? Like he's this big hulking Capellan And uh, it's cool to have him here and kind of link him to uh, the goings on later in the novel verse as well. And our chief medical officer is Dr. Christine Chappell. I don't think I've ever seen Chappell on the Excelsior except for this book. No, I don't 
think I'd have to think back to the other Martin and Mangles Excelsior novel, Forged in Fire. I can't remember if she's in that one on the crew as well. But uh, I thought that was a really great choice to put her as the uh, chief medical officer on the Excelsior. It makes sense. She's an MD, as we learned in the movie era. And I loved seeing her in this role. It was really cool to imagine Majel Barrett in that role again in the kind of movie era chapel role, I guess. Yeah. Forged in fire. I have read that one. That was, that's a good one. I can't, yeah, I can't remember if she was in that or not. So have to go back and look, I'm not going to go through everyone on the crew. Cause I think we'll touch on them as we go through uh, the book. But one thing I wanted to point out is an interesting character here called Lieutenant Pumula Hopman. He is a Thelusian and he alternates between different phases of being male and female. So sometimes he'd show up and he's male and sometimes she'd show up and she's female and they never knew what they were going to get. <laughs> I thought that was an interesting character. Interestingly, and I'm just going to take issue with a little thing here, regardless of whether or not she's in the male or female form, she's always referred to as she in the novel, which I thought was interesting. And I thought might be like a little bit of a a nod towards somebody choosing their gender expression regardless of their outward appearance or or the way they are. So I thought that was really interesting that she's always referred to as she. I, I also kind of wondered that if the novel were written today, would the character be a they and them instead of a she? I, I was wondering if the authors might have made a different choice given uh, where things have gone with regards to that. But regardless, I think it's cool that she gets to kind of choose how she's regarded by the crew. I didn't even pick up that they always refer to her as she. I didn't even pick that up, but I wondered the same thing. I was like, if this was written today, would it be they instead mm -hmm. of she? So let's go ahead and just dive into the book. And, you know, we'll touch on some other characters as we go along. But the Excelsior is heading off to Tholian space. Admiral Nagoras instructs Sulu that as they're going there to take this ambassador, Adian Burgess, there to meet with the Tholian assembly... He tells Sulu that while they're there, he needs to send probes into Tholian's space while they're on this diplomatic mission, but not to tell anybody and not to tell the ambassador either. Starfleet Intelligence has detected there's energy weapons development happening deep in Tholian space, and he wants Sulu to look into it. And they're doing this not just because of weapons development, but they're also detected some information about rips in space or inner space as we heard in the Tholian web, but there was an Orion slave ship that they had somehow got hold of this data that showed that there's these tears in space. So they wanted to detect that too. And they weren't sure if those tears in space were caused by any kind of development of the weapons, but they were detecting debris and energy signatures there. So what'd you think about all that, Dan? It's an interesting mission for them to be on, of course. And, and there's also the plausible deniability aspect of it. So Sulu has to keep secret, not only the mission but if it does come out he has to keep secret starfleet's orders and basically has to kind of say oh it was my decision and mine alone and he's kind of supposed to be left holding the bag for starfleet here so you know a little bit unfair i think to sulu but of course that's sometimes the mission that you have to do for your government i guess it was an interesting bit of cloak and dagger mission for the excelsior here and for sulu in particular well, I kind of felt bad for him, too. I mean, he seemed to be okay with it. But Admiral Nagora did say, if it gets revealed, if the Tholians find out and they approach us about it, we'll deny we knew anything about it. Like, you're on your own, Sulu. We're mm -hmm. not even going to say, yep, it's we, we told him to do that. We'll know, We'll pretend we know nothing about this. We didn't even give the order. Yeah, it's really, it's something we've seen before, of course. Uh, the chain of command two-parter is the most notable one that pops into my head where, you know, they have to deny that Picard was on a mission for Starfleet, an order to which Riker bristles, but Jellicoe is perfectly willing to uphold. So, yeah, this, this happens. Even our beloved Jean-Luc Picard was left twisting in the wind by Starfleet at one point. Yeah, and this would have been written after that episode. So I wonder if that episode had any influence on this. Maybe. I feel like this is a, a fairly real-world situation as well, I'm sure. Things like that have happened all the time. Rather than uh, government being accused of espionage, just the one officer went rogue. You know, oh, he or she did something they weren't supposed to do. We disavow any knowledge. And Mission Impossible, right? That was 
that was even in the little pre-roll thing. The the secretary will disavow any knowledge of your mission. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. You know, we never see Starfleet officers going rogue. That's a very no, odd. No, never. Interesting. Never. Certainly not. Never. Never. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of rogue, we kind of have an, we have an ambassador here that kind of goes a little rogue herself. Uh, ambassador Aiden Burgess, she doesn't know about these probes being sent out, but she is going on this diplomatic mission because the Tholians had requested this meeting. And of course, the crew's like, why would the Tholians want to have a meeting with us? And now that we know that there's something going on in their space, and it looks like maybe they've had a battle with someone near these rips of space because of the debris and the energy signals we've detected, maybe the enemy that they're fighting is more powerful than they can handle, and they want to form an alliance with us. Ambassador Burgess doesn't know any of this at this point, but she later then does because someone at Starfleet headquarters alerts her because word gets around somehow. And now she finds out she confronts Sulu about it. And Sulu is like, you know, what are you talking about? And she's like, you damn well know what I'm talking about, what you're here going to getting ready to do. Yeah, this is a really interesting situation. And, and this character is a really interesting as, one as well. The visiting diplomat who's kind of a thorn in everyone's side is almost a Star Trek trope. But I love that we learn more about her and we get this kind of interesting backstory about her. She makes some decisions that probably aren't the smartest ones, at least from the perspective of our Starfleet characters. And she has her own motivations for doing so. But I love that we learn why that is. She's not just this random element. Everything she does, she does because of her life experiences and her motivations and that sort of thing. So I, I appreciated how well-rounded this character was. I appreciate how well-rounded she is too, but I wasn't sure if I liked her because mm -hmm. of what she's done. So you know, she agrees with Sulu that if the Tholians find out that he has sent probes out into their space, that this could be devastating to the whole relationship, to the whole diplomatic mission. It could even cause war. And she realizes, she even tells him, yeah, you know, hopefully they won't find out about it. But to your point, looking at her backstory, because we get this whole chapter about her childhood and how her life progressed. You know, as a child, she would go out on the, her bike, not even tell her parents where she was going. She'd sneak out and she'd go to this park when she met this these two people there who were travelers who were just traveling all over the place and I guess kind of like hippie in some way or whatever. <laughs> They're just hanging out in the park all the time. And she'd go visit them every evening. And uh, one time they're just gone. They're just, they, they had already left, but they left a bracelet behind for her. And they had little stones in it. And each stone has a story of where they've been. And so she really appreciated explorers. She liked this whole idea of exploring. And then when she got older, her and her fiance went to the rainforest and met some tribes people there who don't really use much technology. And there's just all these life experiences of being less technical and about exploring. It seems like things just being natural. But then as her life progresses, she does marry that fiance, but they get divorced. She marries somebody else, gets divorced. She doesn't have kids. Her parents pass away. And she gets to a point where she's just in her life like, I don't even know if I want to be aligned with Starfleet as much. I, you know, I appreciate and I love what I do in my job and on a diplomatic side of things. But I'm doing a lot doing along this military militaristic thing that, you know, weapons and, and, and orders and. It just is almost like she's gotten bitter in life. Mm -hmm. I really like the view she has of the military versus the diplomatic corps as well. Like she's really distrustful of Starfleet because she sees the kind of militaristic side of them, as, as you mentioned there. And I, I feel like this is an interesting time to set this novel as well, because this is a period of time where Starfleet has become more military than what we've seen, like in the original series, for example. They're yeah, just in the uniforms. I was just going to say, yeah, that. exactly. They have the more militaristic-looking uniforms. There's the more naval feel aboard ships and that sort of thing. And I've actually, just in my own, you know, for whatever reason, whether we cover it or not, I've started reading the next novel in the Lost Era series. And you want to talk about a militaristic Starfleet 
that novel really, uh, the serpents among the ruins by David R. George, the third really gets into the military of Starfleet. And this is definitely a time of increased militarism. And she's really pushing back against that. She sees Starfleet and their goals as counterproductive to diplomacy and the ultimate goal of the Federation, which is to have a galaxy at peace, you know? So it's interesting to see how she pushes back against that and the actions she takes. Like you, I'm not really in her camp at a lot of the decisions she makes either. I I don't think she makes the right decisions. I think she's reckless in a few instances, but I love that we can see why she's come to these decisions, even when we don't agree with them. And the decision is that she tells the Tholians about the probes. Now, knowing that they could take this the totally wrong way and ruin everything and maybe even go to war, she tells them this. And she says she did it because it was in the interests of honesty, truth, and peace. Thankfully, it really didn't work that much against them as it could have. It could have been really a devastating blow to this mission. Yeah. In some ways, she did it because she was gaining their trust mm-hmm. in her. I can I can kind of see the calculus of why she did what she did, whether or not I would have made that decision or agree with it or anything like that. I think she believes that the Tholians will discover this. They will find out. And it would be worse if they were continuing to cover it up and they found it out and had to deny it than if they were just up front and she said, you know, my government has done this, I don't agree with it, and this is what's happening. Interestingly enough, this decision kind of comes back to haunt her later in the novel, where even the Tholians, by the end, are kind of distrustful of Ambassador Burgess because she did this. You know, the one of the Tholian, I think the Tholian admiral says she's betrayed her government once. Like we can't, like, can we trust her? I, she seems to be kind of a loose cannon here. So I thought that was interesting that like, yeah, it has the good effect in the short term and, and maybe not a good effect. There's some fallout from it that's pretty bad, but in the long term, it also destroys her credibility with the Tholians. In a lot of ways, it's a no-win situation with the Tholians because they're so suspicious. So mm-hmm. even when you're honest, they're suspicious. And even if you're lying, they're suspicious. It was this whole balancing act of how she relates to them and this other you know, race of species that we're going to get to later. You know, And it's like, if you're not showing all your loyalty to them, then maybe you can't be trusted. But you can't be loyal all to one side either, especially if you're a diplomat. You know, you're trying to bring two sides together. Yeah, she's actually like what she accomplishes is pretty remarkable given how alien the thought processes of the Tholians are compared to our Federation peoples. So, you know, it's pretty remarkable that she does navigate everything as well as she does. And I think, you know, she is an expert on the Tholians as close to an expert as the Federation has. So she really, in a lot of ways, was in the right place at the right time. But the thought processes are definitely alien to Sulu and the crew of the Excelsior. So, you know, it's 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 amazing that she's able to kind of get them through this, basically. And that's the thing. She's not a Starfleet officer. You know, she's a Federation diplomat. And so she doesn't answer to Sulu, but then she's also working against him or doing her own thing in opposition of what Sulu is doing. If anything, I picked up in this book, it's almost as if what Sulu's doing looks like it's going to work and what Burgess is doing is going to work and whatever situation they're in and who's ever in control at that moment, it ends up working anyway. (laughs) I do feel like there's a lot of luck that happens in this as well. (laughs) There's, there are a lot of situations where I think they, they got through just by the skin of their teeth. There's a little bit of plot armor for some of our characters in this too, I think. (laughs) Well, they, the Tholians end up destroying the probes. So all the four probes are gone. There are four probes, but no more. So I want to touch uh, on the Tholians as we're talking about them real quick. So their lifespan is six to eight months and they share their knowledge from generation to generation. So there's some like telepathy there, almost like a hive mind situation. So even though they have short lifespans, whatever that knowledge is, is passed on. So even dealing with this situation, there's a Tholian that dies, but well, that's okay because someone else just picks up where that Tholian 
leaves off. And when they beam on board the Excelsior, I have to mention this part, it reminded me so much of the Klingons beaming on to the Enterprise in the Undiscovered Country. I just got that vibe from that scene. I had the same thought, oddly enough. And yeah, there's definitely some parallels there. An even more alien enemy than the Klingons were. And yeah, that scene, it just felt familiar somehow these intractable foes yeah and maybe i thought of that also because they kept referring to kittimer in this book at times you know so that referring to that movie so now that we have the tholians on the excelsior kasserine starts telling sulu about that enemy that they were fighting where these probes were because she starts expressing like what is really happening but then we have this other ambassador mosreen who's like tapping her on the shoulder saying basically shut up don't say anything don't say anything we can't trust them but she almost like burgess is like i'm trying to build trust i'm trying to tell them what it is we're dealing with why we have them here and before she can get it all out of her mouth mosreen stabs her in through the suit their protective suit because they're on the excelsior and the tholians have to be in those protected suits And she's going to die. And I'm like, whoa, what's going on here? (laughs) (laughs) That was an incredible scene. And yeah, yeah, it really kind of grabs you like what's going on. And again, kind of going back to the Tholians are just such an alien group of people and very different from what we're used to that this is like, yeah, that's that's just how that situation, how this junior ambassador responds to that situation, you know, and it, of course, shocks the Excelsior crew and they're trying their best to save the ambassador. But then of course we get this kind of uh, bit between the ambassador and Tuvok who is on the scene as well. Yes. Because this ambassador touches Tuvok and through telepathy sends him some message that he's trying to figure out what this message means. But he experiences all this pain at first and is sent into sick bay and chapel's taking care of him. And he's like, I'm trying to decipher what the memory engrams that were implanted in me and trying to figure out what the message is. It's like, like, you know, Catherine's trying to tell me about what she couldn't get out verbally to us. She's trying to send to me in my mind and he's trying to put it all together. I kind of like that scene. Yeah, it was interesting. And the one thing I noticed in this book is the authors write Tuvok really well. I don't know what it was about his inflections and how he spoke and, and how he reacted. I totally heard Tuvok in this. Like Sulu and Chekhov, they're, they're done well and all that sort of thing. But for whatever reason, anytime Tuvok was on the page, I was like, I'm hearing Tim Russ. It's really strange. I don't know why that worked so well for me, but it definitely did. I'm in the same camp. It really worked more than any other character. I could hear Tim Russ easier than the others for some reason. And then he didn't write Chekhov with the Wessels. There was one point that he said Vessels and then they said, and he said it with a W. Yeah. (laughs) There were a couple little just like reminders that like how Chekhov speaks, which I actually liked. I don't like when writers write all his V's as W's and W's as V's and actually write him saying Kipton instead of Captain. You can do the Chekhov accent in your head as you're reading. Like it doesn't need to be spelled out. I I like that choice. I can't remember which book it was, but it was about a year ago. It wasn't that long ago that we read and it was so overdone on Chekhov. And I was like, it was even hard to read. I mean, they put W's and Kipton's and stuff all throughout. Like every sentence is like, I had to read it twice. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I I remember for me, uh, Scotty in Spock Must Die was tough to read at times. Kind of. I remember that too. Yep, exactly. I was just thinking that too. I was like, wasn't there something with Scotty too? And yeah, it was Spock Must Die. Yeah, same thing. But speaking of Tuvok, we got a backstory on him too, which was nice. I like on this novel, we got some backstories on certain people and events. So uh, we were talking about Burgess's backstory. Well, Tuvok has a backstory that takes us to his age at nine years old. He had his pet Seelot that died. And of course, you know, we've all had pets that die, you know, and how emotional it is. And he was trying to deal with his emotions. And of course, as Vulcans, his parents are just be logical about it, Tuvok. So he goes and embarks on something called a Taloth, where he goes for a journey for four months. And he uses that time to purge his emotions. And I thought, aren't his parents freaking out, worrying about him? He just takes off on this walk for four months and doesn't show up. (laughs) 
you know, and they just seem to be like, yeah, okay, that's just what Vulcans do. They go out into the Vulcan's forge somewhere and just are gone for a long time. Yeah, I appreciated this backstory for Tuvok. I also liked how they tied it into his backstory that we saw in the Voyager episode Gravity, where he falls in love with the uh, visiting diplomat's daughter. I can't remember her name, but... Yes. tying that in and showing that like he's had this lifelong struggle with emotions as many Vulcans do, but I'm sure most Vulcan families just kind of hush it up and you know, that kind of thing. But I, I do like that we get more of an insight into Tuvok and kind of where he's at on his journey. And he's having a lot of difficulty working with emotional humans and that sort of thing, which we saw in flashback. And that kind of continues in this novel. Yeah, and that's that backstory of losing his pet, losing his love, dealing with emotions. And anytime he has big emotional moments, he goes off and goes on a journey or does whatever to try to suppress those emotions. And now here he is on Excelsior to the his parents urging him to join. And he's dealing with all those human emotions, but he wants to leave back in the time of the Kittimer Accords. But his parents urge him to stay. And now it's five years later and he's still like, I want to leave. I want to get out of here. <laughs> and he ultimately decides that at the end, that this was the end of his Starfleet career. Mm-hmm. As his first career, his first Starfleet career, as we find out in flashback, of course. Yeah, it, it's an interesting journey. I, I, I really enjoyed that decision to keep Tuvok on Excelsior for this story, because I think he adds a lot to what's going on here and it's an interesting lens to look at what's going on through as well we, we see sulu engaging in cowboy diplomacy as, as spock might put it tuvok really pushing against that like every decision sulu makes seems completely illogical to him you know we should escape we should save as many lives as possible we're likely to be destroyed if we stick around and all this stuff and he's just got no problem saying so to Sulu on the bridge as well, which Sulu puts up with to a point, but every once in a while Tuvok gets to that point where Sulu kind of just has to shut him down and say, mind your business, Lieutenant. This is not up to you right now. Yeah. And Tuvok doesn't really care for that because he doesn't understand. Like he's like, we're not on the same wavelength, you know, all these emotions that these people have and they make these emotional decisions and I'm pointing out logic and they don't want to go, with the logical course of action. And that's why he's like, I just don't fit in here. So it's interesting that decades later, Tuvok goes back to Starfleet. And seems much more equipped at that point to deal with illogical humans and stuff too. So yeah, Tuvok has this very long life and all of those experiences lead to the character we see on Voyager. And I love, even though, like I said, I hear Tim Russ in this role, he really isn't the Tuvok that we see in Voyager. And it's it's a credit to the writers of Voyager and Tim Russ as an actor that such an emotionless character can be given so much life and, and have so many differences from now till then. And, and the fact that Tuvok, the way he is in Voyager, I, I think Tim Russ just plays him brilliantly in that show personally. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And the thing I love about reading these books is how it can change my perspective on things. So just thinking about him trying to deal with all these emotional humans, and this isn't a big part of the book. We're probably going on more than we should, but it just made me wonder about, you know, when he joined Voyager, I guess he got to a point that he could deal with it. But then with Neelix there, I can see why Neelix would drive him more crazy than most because... <laughs> You know, he's like, I thought I'm joining Starfleet crews that just, they have emotions, but not too crazy. And then this crazy guy comes on here and he's all full of emotions. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. <laughs> well, speaking of flashbacks, we get some other flashbacks that happen in the 21st and 22nd centuries. And there are a series of colonies called the O'Neill colonies, which were named after Dr. O'Neill. And you looked them up, Dan. So who was Dr. O'Neill? Uh, I have a little bit of information. I haven't like really looked up, you know, what he's all about or when, when he did this. But basically these asteroid colonies that are in this part of the book are at the Lagrange points. And it has to do with how the Earth's, the Earth's gravitational field interacts with the moon. And there's various points of space where 
uh, something could settle into uh, an orbit around a particular point in space between these two bodies that uh, would give it some stability and allow it to stay there. That's a very quick and dirty explanation of what this is. But yeah, the Lagrange points were were mapped or discovered or theorized by this guy O'Neill, and uh, that's what these colonies are named after. Well, that makes sense because one of the colonies is on an asteroid called Vanguard, and they witness the people on this asteroid witness nuclear war on Earth taking place, and this would have been in 2053. So, wow, that's you know 30 some years from now, Dan. We're we know when it's coming. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> We'll still be doing this show. My anxiety doesn't need uh, more of that. <laughs> yeah, we will definitely still be doing the show. That's a good yeah. thought for sure. We have all these novels to get through. It's going <laughs> to lead us up to nuclear war. <laughs> well, if we're only doing one every two weeks and comics in the meantime, it, it'll take us at least that long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so there's six of these colonies, but the story focuses on this Vanguard asteroid colony. And then after they see nuclear war, you know, the, by the way, these colonies have like the best and brightest of like minds on them because they're trying to figure out environmental solutions and all the, the scientific stuff that they're trying to do for Earth and, and our society and for space, you know, exploring everything you want to do. And so after this nuclear war thing, I mean, this is a huge blow and they're trying to also do things to help save the situation, but also to propel us forward and they start doing all these warp field tests this was kind of nice because we get a bonus scene i guess you could say for star trek first contact because we have zemford cochran and lily down the planet looking through a telescope and watching the colonies do the warp field test because they're involved in it and they see an accident happen i love this tying into cochran and lily and that sort of thing and and kind of showing us before world war three happens you know, the kind of resources they had uh, access to, which kind of, it reframes a little bit of first contact in a way because it, it makes that part of the story feel a little more realistic. Cochrane's not just working out of, you know, this shed in the middle of Montana. He is a warp field scientist who has, has all these resources and people backing him. That, and that makes sense. Yeah, and the people he's working with who are on these colonies are gone now after this accident. Mm -hmm. So it also makes sense how he's now drinking a few years later and just, you know, doesn't care because what's happened to Earth with war and now his friends and colleagues are gone and, you know, it just makes a lot of sense. What happens to Vanguard through this warp field test is it doesn't explode or anything, but it gets propelled 200 light years away from Earth. And so now we get various chapters of decades going by and how these people are surviving and each generation and generation have developed and lived in this situation on this asteroid colony. And they do come in first contact with these humanoids with obscured eyes and snout and tusks, which they call the Tuskers who we know ourselves as being Nausikans, mm. which becomes really bad because Nausikans are not very nice to the colonists. No, it's it's really an, a singular event that sets them on a course that, that gets them to the point that we see them later in the novel. And that moment is really sad because there's these aliens coming aboard the habitat and the director is someone who is saying like, no, put down your guns. We're going to, you know, greet them peacefully. And, you know, you can't help but see parallels to Cochrane on earth when the Vulcans come and he lucked mm -hmm. out. They were the Vulcans, right? But on yeah. the other side of this door are Nausicans with swords and, and plasma rifles. And unfortunately the director is almost immediately murdered and the humans aboard Vanguard learn very quickly that the universe is a rough place and they rise to meet that challenge in unfortunate ways, really. And it's like this moment just sets their destiny on course uh, for what we see later. And it's, it's kind of heartbreaking, really. Yeah, because they are the best and the brightest, but they're all alone out there. Yeah, the director's head gets chopped off. Oh. <laughs> You know, yeah, they get in other situations where they're just finding out that, you know, space is violent. It's not safe. And they become a product of the environment. 
You know, they become conquerors themselves. They later form their own empire and take over worlds and, and create slaves out of different species. And what we're getting at now is that these colonists are now what we learn to be the Neels. It's spelled N-E-Y-E-L. So I like to say Neel or Neel. Yeah, I, I kind of in my head was Niel is how I pronounced it yeah yeah i was too but then when we get in the book they introduce themselves as the nail and yet sulu's like oh that sounds familiar and relates it to o'neill and i'm mm-hmm. like so maybe it's pronounced more like neil neil yeah Neil. Yeah, Neil. Sequ- yeah trying to get close to that you know <laughs> But that becomes our, quote, I guess you'd say villains that are fighting against the Tholians. This is also a race that was featured in Titan, the Red King, which we reviewed over at Literary Treks. And I had read that book twice now, but having never read this one, which this takes place before that, it introduces this this Niel. Yeah, and I, I love that that novel examines what they're like 100 years on in the Star Trek Titan era. And I love that we get to revisit these because they're they're very compelling. Like, I really wish these were kind of a canon part of Star Trek and that, you know, we saw some exploration with them on television shows or something because it's really fascinating the, the people that have been crafted by the authors here. I, I really got invested in their story and like how they evolved and, and had to force their evolution through genetic modification to be able to, to live in, in space more easily and that sort of thing. And also how their language drifted, like we were talking about Neil or Niall, and, you know, the leader of them becomes known as the Drektor, so the Drek yes. apostrophe Tor. It's interesting how the language is written, because they don't get Earth and, and Director pronounced direct exactly right yeah so it's written a little differently it's old earth and then we learn that that's because it's from an irish poem that they had in their right. memory banks that hadn't been wiped out and stuff and I, I just love that and it it drew my mind back to the example of in in the short treks episode calypso and in season three of discovery we have people calling the federation the vidrash like just that that kind of language drift over time i, I thought that was yes. a really fun aspect of them here me too i love that and the interesting part too is not only did they adapt to their environment but they physically adapted to their environment because they're on this asteroid and the asteroid would turn creating its own gravity but over time it became had its own artificial gravity and they were just adjusting to things and they genetically enhanced themselves and now they look didn't even quite look like earth humans are now gray they have thick skin which is almost armor you know to them because it's hard to penetrate and then they have feet with opposable thumbs and they also have a tail you know, mm. I mean, it's so weird that it's like hard to imagine that they were able to accomplish that and that they even did that. But it was because they needed that, you know, like the tail helps them in zero grav situations, you know, and balances yeah. themselves. And when I was reading this, for whatever reason, what I pictured in my head, are are you familiar with the Disney series, The Gargoyles? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, because what, Jonathan Frakes and Marina Sirtis did voices. Yeah, for that show. exactly. Yeah. I don't know why exactly, but for whatever reason, that was kind of the image I got in my head was the gargoyles. Yeah, I see that. Minus the wings, of course. They didn't have the wings, but like the gray skin, the muscular bodies and and big tail and that sort of thing. And and yeah, like opposable thumbs on the feet. That makes sense. Like that would be kind of one of the first things that would help people in zero gravity. And then from there, it just... You know, anytime there's something that needs to be changed to help them survive, the next generation's going to have it because of all the, you know, geneticists that are part of the group here. They're best of the best, like you said. And one of the nails or Neils was brought onto Excelsior because when the Excelsior went into the Antholian space, because there was, uh, they wanted to see the rifts, you know, what was going on. They found the Nael fighting an outpost of the Tholians, and they stepped in to, you know, prevent them from attacking the Tholians. And one of the things that happened is as they were fighting the Nael ship, one of the Nails was out in space, and they beam him on to examine him. He's dead, but then they find out he really isn't dead, and he gets up and he's running throughout the ship, and they're trying to capture him. 
But what's interesting is while Chapel was examining him, she was the one who was able to determine that, yeah, they have human DNA. You know, they're one of us. And I thought that's got to be a strange situation to see gargoyles that are really <laughs> us. <laughs> yeah. No, it was really cool. Like, I, I really love how that all gets pieced together. And it, it makes a lot of sense that with all of this genetic modification, they would be very different from us. And yeah, this, this one surviving after being in space for a while is just like shows how far they've come. I almost want to get enhanced like that. You know, I mean, I want to survive in space. I want to be <laughs> thick skin. <laughs> yeah, I'm good. <laughs> I don't know about the tail, you know, it doesn't work with my pants, but you know, I don't know. One of the characters I want to talk about that we didn't mention earlier is Lieutenant Commander Lejeur. And he is a Hauken navigator on the Excelsior. And he's getting married to Lieutenant Sandra Doxy. And she's the principal helmsman. So as first in the beginning of the book, when they're all like sitting around talking about, oh, going to get married, da, 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 I was like, yeah, one of them's going to die. Oh, <laughs> I know. This is one of the things that kind of bugged me about this book. And I was looking back through my like old review of it and that kind of thing. And I never made this connection before. But yeah, she's totally there as a character to be fridged to right. you know for what it does for Lozier's character which is unfortunate you know it's, it's kind of an unfortunate trope and and I wish this didn't do it but yeah it is very telegraphed early on I think yeah it, it's the same as like oh just one day before retirement or yeah we're gonna get married <laughs> and it's so called out like even I think it was it was it Rand or Chapel even said like boy I sure hope that what happened to the Tomlinsons in yes. Balance of Terror in the original series doesn't happen to them. Like, <laughs> oh, really? I know. <laughs> I love that part. Yeah. Oh. They're like, oh, young love. I hope something doesn't bad. Something bad doesn't happen. It's like, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but of course, yes, she gets killed, you know, in the nail attack. So, but now Lejeur's like pissed. But it's interesting because where he comes from, from the Halkin people, they're a very peaceful society. They don't believe in violence. But again, we get a backstory on him, which is so nice. We're getting all these backstories. But we find out that his homeworld was attacked by some Orions and he picked up a gun and started firing at the Orions. He started killing them. And even though he saved people in his, the lives of people in his village, they banished him because they're not about violence. But he's like, you know, but I saved you. You know, I was able to. And they're like, yeah, but you're banished. So now mm -hmm. he's in Starfleet and his fiance dies. And now he wants to inflict violence on this Nael. Akaar, who's a good friend of his, which still I have a hard time imagining Akaar is young. But his young friend, Akar, is like, you're better than this. You don't need to do this. To, you know, but he wanted to shoot him. And he and Akar even goes to Chekhov and says, you need to talk to Lejeur and, and evaluate him. And check and Lejeur's like, I'm not going to do anything, Commander. I'm not going to do anything. But sure enough, he tries. Yeah, he's an interesting character. And I do like the little bit of retcon that they do for his character. Because like when we see him in Star Trek VI and in flashback, he doesn't have the little like circle on his forehead that all the Halkins have and that they mention him having in this novel, but it's a good retcon. Like I thought it was interesting making him a member of that species and giving him that background, you know, as much as I, I dislike what they did with Sandra Doxy and her character. And, you know, she's not even really much of a character in the story. She's just there to serve Lozier's story. Uh, I still liked Lozier and, and, what he has to deal with and, and how he comes to the comes to terms with it too. At the end, the decision that he makes to help Ambassador Burgess in her mission and then the guilt he feels about it and you know the thing that ethically he has to do is go to his commanding officer and say what he's done. I love that he makes that decision. He could get away with it. He could just totally never reveal his part in it, but he's so deeply moral that he has to go ahead and and admit his complicity by the way the character we're talking about from flashback and the undiscovered country is is the navigator who has the goatee the dark mm. hair and the goatee but by the way that nail member that they were chasing that he tried to kill his name is jordan he plays a big part in the novel as we go along because the excelsior and the nail are now trapped in a tholian web 
and the Tholians think that the Excelsior is in league with the Nile. And so Sulu, Jordan, Chapel, Tuvok, Akaar, and Ambassador Burgess, they beam over to the Nile crippled ship and then are therefore captured by the Nile. They were hoping to go over there and work things out, but they get captured. But in a big Starfleet way, in a big Star Trek way, Sulu explains to director John Jim that they are distant ancestors. He goes in explaining things. They don't really come around and accepting it. I love how Burgess is saying to Sulu, don't tell them we're from Earth. Mm-hmm. You know, just tell them that we're somehow related. We know about Earth, you know, but we're not necessarily from Earth because they'll get really suspicious and it might weird them out. That was interesting because like at first I was thinking like, no, they should. They should show them proof of this and blah, blah, right. blah. But at the same time, like I get it, like you kind of come to understand it would be like somebody going to our government or something and saying like, oh yeah, I was, I was there with, with the original humans in the garden of Eden. That's where I'm from. And we're supposed to go, oh yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's kind (laughs) of the place that earth has taken in their mythology now. Like it's this, it's this abstract idea, this far off place. That's not necessarily a real place, but it's like the stuff of legends. Right. So, and I mean, this, literally happened in star trek i guess if somebody said i am the god apollo worship me we're gonna go like okay yeah no yeah right dude yeah and look how tall you are yeah sure (laughs) uh but anyway uh they work it out and the crew beams back to excelsior this part i wasn't really sure how i felt but after sulu talks with yukskeen who is the admiral of the Tholian flagship, he says that the admiral says we can work this out through a truth combat ritual, which means that Sulu and Yoskin will fight either to the death or either party yields. And Sulu's like, I think this is a great idea. I have good fencing skills. I will go over and do this and check off and everybody like, Sulu, I don't think that's a very good idea and you could die. Well, someone's got to do it. <laughs> I was like, I don't know. Did I, I kept thinking, oh, I bet Sulu has a plan. He, he knows that he's taking a big chance because, number one, if he goes over there and loses, then war could still happen. If he doesn't go over, then war will happen. But I'm thinking he must have some other plan that he's going to go over there and pretend he's going to fight. But then he's going to he has some other plan in his back pocket that he's going to work everything out and everything is resolved. But that's not it. It's really Burgess that has something in her back pocket. Yeah, this I don't know. I I don't know why I'm so forgiving about this part, because it seems ridiculous. But (laughs) at the same time, like we do learn that not only was Sulu, I guess, considering fencing as a hobby, he apparently won like a bunch of tournaments of like many star systems and is like galaxy renowned <laughs> as a as a sword fighter, I guess. So he's just that confident that he can hold his own at least here. And I don't know, I really enjoyed this part of the story. And I don't know if it's because I read it way back when it first came out and I just like loved this novel so much, but it, it doesn't bother me even though like, intellectually looking at it it should bother me and it doesn't make a lot of sense i don't know why i have no idea why it bothered me a little but once he got there i mean he was holding his own you know Mm -hmm. he was he was about to win he had him you know he wasn't going to kill him but he had he had his sword he he took the admiral's sword from him he had him and was about to say you know this is over i win and all of a sudden, Burgess, who's on a shuttlecraft, decides she's going to beam them all on to her shuttlecraft. And she's there with Jordan and Lejour help them get the shuttlecraft off the ship to get over to the Tholian ship to beam them on. And she beams them on with also having previously beamed on Drector Jojim. And she's like, OK, I have you all in a room. I'm negotiating this peaceful diplomatic mission. We're all going to get this done. And I was kind of like... But I think Sulu had it. He had it. But this is where I get back to what I said earlier, where it's like, but his plan's working, but then so is hers. So whatever plan is in motion seems to be working. Mm -hmm. I did still appreciate the intervention, though, because I feel like Admiral Yulskeen would not have yielded, no matter what. Like, even though Sulu had him, I think he would have said, you're going to have to kill me. I don't know if Sulu would have 
killed the Admiral, or even if he did go ahead and do it, ultimately, I don't think that would be good for Federation Tholian relations that, you know, he killed their Admiral of their fleet kind of thing. (laughs) So, yeah, I don't know. I do agree. Like, yeah, Sulu held his own and Sulu absolutely had the upper hand there. But I still don't see him winning, even winning that as ultimately reaching all the goals that they achieve through Burgess's plan. So do you think Sulu made the wrong decision to go? I don't think he made the wrong decision. I think he made the best decision he could with the resources that he had. I think that was the best outcome that he could produce given his position and what he was able to do. But because Burgess has a different set of skills and a different outlook and a different mindset to be able to deal with this, I think her solution was ultimately the best of of those solutions, if that makes sense. It does. And I, I think that's what I was getting at earlier was I was hoping when he agreed, Sulu agreed to this combat, that he had a plan that Burgess actually ended up doing, you know, that he had something in his back pocket, which he didn't. Mm-hmm. And so I appreciate her more in this book now in her decisions than I do of Sulu. Absolutely. By the end. Yeah, for sure. I think in the, in this moment, especially. Yeah. yeah. Which we're so used to Star Trek that the captain is usually right. And the ambassador is the one fumbling and messing things up, but this is the opposite. I'm not saying that Sulu is fumbling and messing things up. I think some of the decisions he made still may have worked, but I think she really was making the better decisions. I think so too. Yeah. And again, it comes down to that basic, the military versus the diplomatic corps, you know, not, not saying that Starfleet is hundred percent military, but Sulu's part of that machine. He's part of that mindset and his solutions are going to be more martial than what Burgess's solutions are. And I think Sulu's biggest mistake was not utilizing that resource that he had in the ambassador there. And and maybe Burgess's biggest mistake was not trusting Sulu enough to bring this to him. Sulu yeah. might very well have gone along with it, but both of them kind of didn't really trust the other enough to put the ball in either of their court. They had to take the reins themselves. And I'm using so many tortured metaphors here, but you know what I mean? Like they both had to take control as they saw fit rather than cooperating as they probably should have. Which is a great segue into how this ends because they're not cooperating. They're not communicating. They're not working together. So sometimes there's misunderstandings, but then that's what we're finding out now between the Tholians and the Nael is that it was all under misunderstandings because they couldn't communicate. Their translators didn't work properly. And now that we have a Starfleet communicator in play here, or a universal translator, I should say, now it's working much better. So they understand that, hey, you know, the Tholians, they thought they were being good people by trying to repair this rip in space. And and they were using technology that was actually harming the Nael. And the Nael didn't know why this was being done. They thought they were being attacked and the Nael couldn't communicate to the Tholians of what they were doing. And so there was all this misunderstanding. And to me, in some ways, I thought the Tholians backed down a little too easily in this for Tholians, but I think just to see the error of their ways, just so I don't think they really benefit from fighting the Nael anyway. So they Mm -hmm. were able to just like say, okay, we're at peace. Yeah, I appreciated the ending. And and like you, I, I kind of had the feeling that the Tholians were a little bit too humanized at the end, if that makes sense. The, yeah. Just the, the scene with the ambassador and the admiral standing on the bridge and they're kind of talking back and forth. I was like, this doesn't feel like two Tholians. This feels like two humans, which might be part of the design, like to kind of show us, you know, we're not all as different as we think. And even, even this completely different form of life, we can come to some kind of understanding. So that kind of makes sense if that's part of the theme of the novel. But yeah, I did get that impression that like, oh, this, this worked out fairly easily. You know, at the same time, once you realize, because the Tholians and the Nile both think that the other is an unthinking, unfeeling animal operating purely on instinct. So once that's overcome, it makes sense that there's a lot more progress really fast when you realize, oh, they are intelligent beings, probably not as smart as us, but you know, they do think so. Okay. We can, we can talk with them. 
<laughs> and by not right. as smart as us, I mean each of them is the Tholians are thinking that, and the Nihil are probably also thinking that about the Tholians. I didn't mean us like humans. <laughs> right. No, I get you. Yeah. Well, then, I mean, it really ends then with Burgess going with the Nile back to their homeworld. She decides to leave the Federation Starfleet because she realizes that's her calling is to help these people. Yeah. And I, I appreciated this decision. And like she says, she's in pretty hot water with probably the diplomatic corps and Starfleet anyway. So, you know, she may as well be a deserter <laughs> as well and, and decides to, yeah, kind of be the ambassador long term from Earth to the Nile, which... I thought was really cool. And of course, as you and I both know, to be continued in Star Trek Titan, which I, I think that's pretty cool. Which is cool because, again, I've read that Titan book twice, but I never read this one. Now I want to read the Titan book again. I want to read <laughs> the Red King a third time now, but I just I have so much to read. We got to read all these other Star Trek novels before we get to 2053, before that nuclear attack. So, yeah, got a lot of work to do here. So. <laughs> So we know you like the book, Dan. I mean, because you've read it multiple times, but what are your final thoughts on The Sundred? Yeah, it's it's one that I really enjoy. I love seeing Sulu and the crew of the Excelsior, for one thing, even just on that level. I think I, I really enjoy it for that. I remember watching Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, and at the end, you know, the Excelsior flies off the side of the screen and I was like, oh, well, they're going to do a Sulu series now, obviously. Like, that's obviously the next step. And, you know, that never happened. And then we saw them on Voyager and I was like, oh, okay, they're going to do a Sulu series now. I can't wait to see this. Still never happened. And, you know, it's kind of one of those things I always wanted to see. So to get that in books and to see those adventures, uh, there's this one. And as we mentioned, Forged in Fire, I think, is another great Sulu novel adventure and the uh, audio dramas that we talked about earlier. This one is, I think, a really good example of that story of, of the uniqueness of Sulu as a captain and that crew. The individual characters as well, I think, are all terrific in this novel. And then the establishment of the Nihil, these long-lost offshoots of humans out there in the small Magellanic cloud. I think that's just such a cool story and one of my favorite non-canon Star Trek stories, you know, and I, I really wish it had some kind of place in canon somehow, because I want to see more exploration of these people somehow. I have the one issue, of course, of the character being fridged, which bugs me the more that I think about it. So yeah, I think other than that, I love the story. I would have to give it four out of five green-blooded, pointed-eared elves that uh, the Nihil at some point came in contact with uh, before they left the galaxy. Yes, I remember that part in the book. Yeah, I've always wanted to read The Sundered, and I'm glad I did. And I, I didn't really have any sort of expectations. And when I started getting into it, I was talking to Dan when I was about almost a third of the way through the book, and I said, I really like this book. It's it's better than I was expecting. And like I said, I really wasn't expecting anything, but it was beyond what I thought it was going to be. And to your point, I enjoy the Captain Sulu and Excelsior crew and seeing their adventures. And the Nael was very interesting to me and the flashbacks uh, to First Contact. We even got an actual scene from the movie that involved Riker and LaForge when they first meet with Cochran and telling Cochran what he did. And, you know, it was over there and all that stuff. But, you know, just a <laughs> lot of fun things in there. And all the backstories of the characters was really helpful. And seeing Tuvok when here was great, too. So, I, yeah, it was a it was a good page turner. I, I just kept going and I really enjoyed it. So I give this four out of four probes that are going to help discover what is really going on in Tholian space. Nice. And before we get a, a letter from Amy Nelson, uh, Deanna Troy was in that scene as well. And we got a little bit of her in the novel, too. <laughs> we did get a little of her, too. Yes, that's true. So, Dan, where can people find you online if they want to interact with you? You can interact with me on Twitter. I'm at Kurtrats. That's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. You can also find me on youtube.com slash Kurtratz Productions. Yeah, interact is a good term. Audience engagement. That's my buzzword for 2021. I want to get to know my audience there. So yeah, thank you for that. And uh, yeah, Instagram, Kurtratz47. Uh, but you can also interact with me on the Positively Trek discussion group 
on Facebook. That's my favorite Star Trek hangout these days. And I really enjoy the great group of people we have there. And you can get to know us through our Patreon service now. We now have, we're on now Patreon. Just look for Positively Trek. There's different levels of service on there. It tells you what you get with each level. And uh, I guess we'll be producing some content exclusively for the patrons. Yeah, absolutely. Really excited about this kind of new chapter for the podcast and really blown away by the response so far. Thank you all so much who have signed up and look forward to seeing you all there. And yeah, we will have bonus content there. Uh, If you sign up for any level, you get access to our patron-only feed And that's where any kind of bonus content will be put. And there's also other perks for the other donation levels as well as you get higher. So, yeah, really excited to see uh, where that leads us in this, as I say, next chapter for the podcast. And then you can find me on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex. I'm on Instagram at Admiral Rex. Of course, you can find me in the Facebook group that Dan mentioned about. And also you can send us an email to PositivelyTrek at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter and Instagram at PositivelyTrek. And you can go to our website to listen to episodes, PositivelyTrek.com. And uh, also, uh, yeah, I'll be making a special appearance on an upcoming literary tracks. Ha <laughs> Surprise, Ooh. surprise. So, uh, yeah, be on the lookout for that. So thanks everyone for joining us. You know what we always say at the end? Yeah, you do know what we say. That is stay positive. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.